Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Crucifixious from Box Mass in B minor, sung by the English Baroque soloists. The Creed says it this way He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. That is how the Nicene Creed describes Christ's act of saving the world through his suffering and death. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, February the 13th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon joins us for part four of our series. On the Nicene Creed, we'll spend some time with Brian Brown, president of the National Organization for Marriage, discussing President Biden's remarks about the Equality Act and his State of the Union address. Then we'll discuss the five-fold crisis for Western civilization with Spencer Claven. He's author of the new book, How to Save the West. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, praise, serve, and obey, and see my Savior's hands. And he's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. A joy to be with you. We walked through this section last time near the end of our conversation in a little bit of haste. Let's go back to the crucifixion in the creed. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea. So we'll pick up again with the was crucified for us. And we don't want to miss that for us. We already had that, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. But we have it reiterated, especially of the act of Christ being crucified. This is done for us. And this for us comes directly from the scriptures. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul had given sort of a summary of uh, the gospel that he preached, kind of the first hint of a creed that we actually have in the sacred scriptures. And he said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So for us in the sense of for our sins. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ crucified for us. There it is again. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died and died by crucifixion for all. Therefore, 
all have died. And 1 Thessalonians 5.10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He died for us that we might be able to live with him. And we remember 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And finally, Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So you get this impression from St. Paul, how massive the teaching of Christ crucified is. I've argued before, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you notice that when he's in Athens, the one thing he actually doesn't mention is the cross. And then when he gets to Corinth, which is the next stop on the way, he has this massive crisis going on where he's feeling like you know, he was, he says, when I came to you, I was in fear and trembling. What's going on? I think he realized, man, I was trying to use my own smarts there in Athens as a way to connect with the people instead of just preaching Christ crucified. And there's no record there in the book of Acts that a church is founded. There are individual believers that are specifically mentioned who come to faith in Athens, but no founding of a church. Like there's no letter to the Athenians from Paul in in the corpus. So it's worthwhile that St. Paul just held that out front and center. I preach Christ crucified. That's what I'm preaching. And that Christ is crucified for you for the forgiveness of your sins, because he's crucified for your sins. He's being the offering that's being offered to God to cover over the sin of the world, the atoning sacrifice. But then, crucified for us, there's a little thing that we tend to overlook in there next. Under Pontius Pilate, we just touched on this briefly. I really would like to unpack it a little bit more. First of all, Pontius Pilate, of course, that's confessed across the Gospels, right? St. Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He's trying to get out of the responsibility for the death sentence he's putting on Jesus. Similarly, Mark 15, 15, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So there's no question the gospels teach that the crucifixion of Jesus happened under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Same thing, Luke 23, verse 24, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. John 19, 15, away with him, away with him, they cried, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And of course, the chief priests answer back with, ah, the only king we have is Caesar. Acts 13, verse 28, St. Paul says, and though they, the Jewish leaders, found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And finally, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, St. Paul says, I charge you, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Pilate, they're taught, he anchors this whole thing in human history. This is non-mythological, right? It happened in a specific location in, in, in the Roman province of Judea. It happened under a specific governor, Pilate. 
It happened at a specific time, at the time of the Passover. And all of that means it is nowhere near like the myths of the corn gods like you have in all of the surrounding Mediterranean world. Let me just explain that, right? That, that, that this idea of the God who dies and then rises again. It's all over the place there, and it's tied very much to the planting of seed. It's a fertility type of cult. And the idea behind it is that you then mystically participate with the God and what he's going through, and then you get new life too. The weird thing is, if you asked, if you asked an Egyptian, when did Osiris die? He's going to say, the question makes no sense. It's, it's, it's a story. It's not meant to have been history. So the really weird thing is what C.S. Lewis observed. He said, you know, that in ancient heathenism and all this Mediterranean basin, the world was being prepared for salvation, while in Judaism, salvation was being prepared for the world. And this really comes into play when you're reading the Gospel of John in chapter 12. Remember, the Greeks come up and they're like, man, we want to see Jesus. And then Jesus does the oddest thing. He says words that these Greeks get, but that a Jew would be like, what? Because God worked. He hammered that whole fertility cult out of them. They were not allowed to think like that. He was their only God. They couldn't think of this dying and rising thing. It was not going to be part of their way of relating to God. All these multiplicity of gods around them. So John 12, the grain, you hear Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, then it brings forth much seed. So he himself speaks there of being planted in the earth and springing up and bearing great fruit. The Greeks would have immediately said, oh, wow, he's saying he's going to do the corn god thing. But all of the Jews would be like, what's that? So I think that's a very powerful little section there. So uh, then the line, he suffered. Let's talk about that, okay? He suffered. I don't think we reflect enough upon the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture do reveal them to us in, in detail. You stop and think about Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, the prophecy, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote that. David lived 1000 B.C., and this isn't fulfilled till 33 AD, but it perfectly describes what they did to Jesus. They pierced his hands and his feet. Isaiah says in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. There's that for us again. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when the New Testament reflects on the suffering of Jesus, curiously, the gospels don't dwell on it, right? I mean, they're, I think when Jesus said, I thirst, that's the only physical complaint you hear him utter. You do hear him cry his agony of being abandoned by his father in the, the cry of dereliction, quoting again from Psalm 22. But Hebrews 13, verse 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So on the outside of Jerusalem is where he suffers for the sins of the world. First Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's a particularly interesting one, Todd, because I can't count the number of people say to me, well, he suffered so that I don't have to. And I always think, well, that's kind of the opposite of what St. Peter taught, isn't it? He suffered so that he could leave you an example. The, the word there is like the copying out in a book, uh, like you're practicing your letters. You remember having those where the letters were partially filled in and you, you know, you've, you filled the rest of it in. That's how you practice. That's what Jesus' sufferings are for us so that in our suffering, we might be able to walk in his steps, which was faith in his father, receiving even the sufferings from the hand of the one who loves him and was doing nothing but good through them. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So why did Christ suffer in the flesh? He suffered so that you and I, especially in our sufferings, can be brought near to God. Any further thoughts you might have on the suffering business? Well, I just want to, before we take this break, make sure that on two points, one on the pilot point that in the gospel of John makes it quite clear that he's going to his death voluntarily. And not only that, it is his act that brings about his death. Mm -hmm. It's even as, as much authority as Pilate had when Pilate asserts that authority and says, don't you know that I have the power to set you free or, or put you to death? Jesus response is, you would have no authority over me were it not given to you from above. In essence, he's saying, I gave you this authority to do what you're about to do mm -hmm. so that we understand the bigger picture here. Yes, he is historically sentenced to death by Pilate, but Pilate's doing Jesus bidding in this case. Yeah, beyond shadow of doubt, we have, especially in John's gospel, that very clear revelation that what well, he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again, this command I've received from my father. So there's no question that the, the act of the passion itself is Jesus' own act. And it's really clear if you stop and think about it, right? They come to arrest him. And at first, when the disciples pull their sword and, you know, Peter whacks off the guy's ear, uh, Malchus's ear, I think they were so confident in the face of the multitude there because they knew they had Jesus with them. And hey, if Jesus says, well, like in that instance, I am, what's going to happen to them? They all fall down on the ground. But then he doesn't use that power. All he has to do is unthink. I mean, he's, he can think, you do not exist anymore, and they're gone, you know? But he doesn't do it. He doesn't use his divine power because he wants to suffer and die for the sin of the world as his father has given him to do the cup that his father has given him to drink. He is determined to drain down to its bitter end. So I think that's a very important point, as you said there. And, and finally, before we take the break, the suffering is, it's different from our suffering in many ways, but in the, perhaps in the biggest sense, it's different in that he must allow himself to suffer at the hands of men. It really is his act of submission to his father and to know that he can stop it at any second, right? I mean, he has the absolute power to have this not happen, but he chooses to go through it. Yeah, maybe we can pick up there on the other side because I, I do want to direct people, if they've not heard it, to uh, Jordan Peterson's rather interesting take on the crucifixion. We can do that on the other side. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest, part four of our weekly series on the Nicene Creed. We're going through the creed where Jesus is 
crucified, suffered, and we'll also talk about buried, and on the third day, raised again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Things above, that's the theme for this year's hymn sing at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The bridegroom soon will call us. Jerusalem the golden, wake awake for night is flying, and a whole bunch more. You don't want to miss it. Making the Case is Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons, or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Here is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Called Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, volume two, on the hymn Eternal Father Strong to Say, written in 1860 by William Whiting and beginning, O Thou Who Bits the Ocean Deep. This hymn was published in 1861 with the first line known today, known throughout the world as the Sailor's Hymn. It may have been written for a student of Whiting's who was about to sail to the United States. You can read Eternal Anthems for yourself. Just go to our website and order it, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Eternal Anthems, The Story Behind Your Favorite Hymns, Volume 2. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest at Part 4 of our weekly series on the Nicene Creed. You wanted to come back to, I believe it was Jordan Peterson's take on the crucifixion. Yeah, I know this kind of crazy, but there's it's really one of these stunning moments on the internet when Joe Rogan is interviewing Jordan Peterson, 
And Jordan Peterson tries to explain to Rogan what the crucifixion is all about. But he does it in the most intriguing way. He turns to the snake, the same as Jesus does in John 3, right? The snake in the wilderness. And he tells the story there, you know, the people complaining and God gives them something to complain about. He sends the the fiery snakes in. And then they they had to look at the snake. And he says, so they had to look at the thing, the image of the thing they were afraid of. And if they did, they would be healed. He says, that's just, you know, he says it either happened or it's crazy because I mean, this is, this, this is the principle of so much psychology, right? You have to stare at the thing you're afraid of. You have to confront it. So he said, look at the crucifixion of Jesus then. And he points to John three, of course, where Jesus literally lifts this up as his picture of his suffering. And he says, look, everything you're afraid of, it's right there. Think about suffering, Todd. Think about all the things you're afraid of. Your friends abandoning you, feeling like God has abandoned you, physical pain, and people making fun of you and jeering at you, becoming a public spectacle, being being exposed. I mean, like naked there on the cross, and and, and his family having to watch him suffer and die. His mom right there. Aren't these all the horrible things that people are afraid of? And he said, look at that. All of our sufferings are gathered there. He said, it's like the total story of the, it's like you can't get beyond all the sufferings that come crashing down on that one man on that tree. And he says, and you just keep looking and keep looking. And the more you look at it, you begin to realize, wait a minute, this is God himself joining us in these horrid sufferings. So suffered under Pontius Pilate is just a huge weight. I mean, there's so much there. I don't know when Jordan was explaining this, if he had yet become a Christian. I think he sort of now professes to be a believer, but it's clear that the word of God was doing work on him as he kept on thinking about the scripture. So anyway, I just thought his take on that was was really beautiful for the suffered. Christ accumulates everything that we're afraid of suffering into that one act. And he bids us look at it, that we might know that we'll never be alone in any of our suffering because God himself has come to bear them with and for us. And was buried. Why is that important? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, again, right out of the scriptures, right? First Corinthians 15, 4 says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Mark 14, 8 Jesus is defending the woman who who anoints him, and he says, she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Jesus knows coming into Holy Week, of course, that his sufferings are coming up and that his body will be buried. We probably should just clarify that for a second. The normal Jewish way of doing this, right, is you put someone into a tomb in the earth and you basically let the stink and decomposition happen and then after it's through you got a pile of bones to be gathered and then they would gather the bones and put those together in an ossuary like you know actually in our own day they found the ossuary that belongs to joseph caiaphas the man who basically sentenced jesus to death uh, the high priest so his body would have been put there to do that. Of course, the problem is his body is not going to uh, decompose and disintegrate because it's incorruptible and it wasn't going to be there that long. But it did get buried. 
That's the big thing. So Matthew 27, verses 59 to 61, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Same story told in Mark 15. And Luke 23 gives the exact same account, all attributing especially the the burial of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea and how he shared his tomb with the Lord that day and the women watching. John 19 is the only place where it says, in addition to Joseph coming, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at first, that conversation we were just referring to with Jordan Peterson was with Nicodemus, right? Lifting up the son of man. So he helps Joseph put Jesus in the tomb for the day of the preparation. So all throughout scripture, you get this very clear teaching then, not only did Jesus really die, but his body was buried and he's buried in such a way that the Jews, remember, they were a little nervous about it. Matthew relates this story. So they actually sealed the tomb to make sure, and they set a guard to make sure that his disciples don't come and say, hey, they're not going to let them steal him away and then say to the people, he's risen. In their mind, that would be a greater deception than anything Jesus ever did before. Well, of course, it's no deception at all, and the disciples didn't come, and the sealed tomb actually helps to prove Jesus comes out of a sealed tomb, just like he appears in the upper room, right? He does stuff with his body that just is beyond us. But the big point here was that he really did share our grave. He enters into the grave as we do, and he does it to make it be temporary. Temporary for him? temporary for us. That's a beautiful thing. Next little line is, and the third day. I just want to stop on that. People have sometimes struggled over that. I have a good friend who fusses about the church's uh, liturgical practice on this. She goes, wait a minute. He dies and we celebrate his death on Good Friday. And then 24 hours later, or a little bit more, you guys are celebrating Easter with the vigil of Easter. Well, the way to understand that is to remember the Jews counted any part of a day as a day. So um, he dies before sunset on Friday. He is in the tomb through sunset on Saturday. And then sometime after sunset on Saturday, which would then be Sunday, he rises from the dead. So that's the third day. Jesus himself used the word before it ever came to be. Every time he's predicting the passion, listen to what he says. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Similarly, when he repeats it, Matthew 17, 23, they'll kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew 20, 19. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and to be raised on the third day. So it's no big surprise that the chief priests wanted to keep the tomb sealed so that they knew that Jesus had very publicly stated he would rise on the third day. They didn't want that word to spread about. Acts 10 verse 40 says, God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. And 1 Corinthians 15, 4 again, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he rises again. The third day he rises again. And that again has sometimes troubled people, right? They're like, why does it say again? Why doesn't it just say he rises? The picture is of lying down and then getting back up. We would normally say you get up again, right? 
So that's what Jesus does there next. Why is it important that this is according to the scriptures? I, I want to get to that, but I want to get to that after we just take, can I, well, let me give one scripture and then we'll get to it. Can we do that? First Thessalonians 4.14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the language of the creed right there. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. According to the scriptures is again, the language of scripture. First Corinthians 15.4, in accordance with the scriptures, he is raised on the third day. Luke 24, 44 to 47, Jesus says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms needs to be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that means in the Old Testament scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The passage he's probably referring to is Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're in part four of our weekly series on the Nicene Creed. We'll come back to According to the Scriptures as we look at that section of the Nicene Creed next. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and lay people worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com Located an hour west of Chicago, Sycamore is home to St. John Lutheran Church, a confessional liturgical congregation faithfully delivering our Lord's gracious gifts. As repentant sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we worship, study, pray, eat, and fellowship together. Join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for the Divine Service. To learn more, visit us on the web at stjohnsycamore.org. The cross is our theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ Our Savior Lutheran, Elizabeth, Colorado. 
First Bethlehem Lutheran, Chicago, Illinois. First Lutheran, Boston, Massachusetts. Lutheran Church of the Cross, Rockville, Maryland. Living Faith Lutheran, Cumming, Georgia. Redeemer Lutheran, Lawrence, Kansas. St. John Lutheran, Kewaskum, Wisconsin. St. Paul Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Trinity Lutheran, North Little Rock, Arkansas. And Zion Lutheran, Winter Garden, Florida. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's our weekly series on the Nicene Creed with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Well, let's get back into he rose again according to the scriptures. Well, when you think about uh, the entirety of the Old Testament, we want to make sure we understand it the way Jesus himself understood it. It was in his eyes, his own book, and the story of everything that Israel passed through, not in any way denying the historicity, but affirming the historicity of everything that's there. It all served as picture prophecy to point to what Christ himself had come into the world to do. Do you remember at the Mount of the Transfiguration when all of a sudden Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah? So the lawgiver, the first five books of the Bible, and then the the great prophet Elijah standing in for all the rest of the prophets. And what are they talking to Jesus about? About his exodus. Moses had an exodus, bringing Israel out of Egypt. Elijah, I mean, he had an exodus, right? I mean, ascension into heaven and a whirlwind. But Jesus is going to have something that's even more impressive. He's going to punch this hole right through death itself to bring his people through. And then he's going to celebrate the overthrow of death. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 25, the big banquet to celebrate death's demise and to destroy the destroyer of the earth. And uh, you see this throughout the pages of the Old Testament. I mean, you think about Ezekiel and the uh, Valley of Dry Bones and how everything is reversed. And Jesus is in the process of doing that reversal by his own suffering, death, and resurrection. I think of the sign of Jonah. That's Jesus' reference there to the only sign he will give to this unbelieving generation is the fact that not not a small thing, rising from the dead. Right. I mean, especially if that is true, that Jonah died in the belly of the fish, this is huge. That's maybe why it's one of Jesus' favorites. But either way, the uh, the passage that I mentioned earlier from Hosea 6 or the, the image of Jonah, you'll notice these are all from the Book of the Twelve, which always seems to be so much in the forefront of Jesus' mind when he's preaching and teaching. So he definitely understands everything coming to a a grand culmination in himself, and he's going to lead the way. He's going to make a pasca, a passage, through death into eternal life, and it's going to be a way open for the people of God thereafter. As we sing in the Te Deum Laudamus, when thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou hadst opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. That's what he is in the process of doing, and the scripture said This is what he would come to do. The seed of the woman who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. This is the blessing that he would be. But like Isaac was a sacrifice, he's going to be the sacrifice. All of the types, they all come and meet together in him. 
and ascended into heaven. So that brings us to like where we are now, right? The moment of the ascension is the moment where Jesus goes from his visible presence, sort of normally hanging around, to being invisible. We're going to hear what he ascends to do in a second, but that he ascends to heaven. He is first off going back where he had gone before. He makes this clear in John 17. He asks his father to glorify him with the glory he had with the father before the ages began. And he begs his father to bring his disciples there to see his glory. So his ascension is the promise that we will have an ascension too. We will be brought into the Father's presence as well. Jesus does say very clearly in John 3, verse 13. Boy, we've been in John 3 a lot today, haven't we? Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the only one who ascends to heaven is the Son. That means at first, obviously. John 20, verse 17 when Jesus meets Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, remember she kind of tackles him and wants to hold him and go back to the way things were before. And Jesus tells her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, the gift of the ascension is that Jesus wants to bring us home to his father as our father. The moment of the ascension is actually talked about in Luke 24. There we hear verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. Similar story told in Acts 1, same author, of course. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, it's the ascension, And a cloud took him out of their sight. Think about cloud like Moses going into the cloud. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he ascends beyond our visible sight to the Father. Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended, that is, who came to us from the Father, is the very one who ascended. And Ephesians says, Far above all the heavens, I mean, to the heaven of heavens, that he might fill all things. So he ascends to his Father's side. So what's he doing while he's there? And we get that with the next phrase of the creed, and sits at the right hand of the Father. What's the the freight of that? You have to hear sitting as being enthroned, ruling, having dominion. This is what he says at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when he sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, they are doing it with all the authority of Jesus Christ behind them. Mark 16 says, verse 19, Then, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Listen to this. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. 
and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is not twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the Father to give the cue, okay, now you can go back and and return in glory and bring it into the show. Instead, he is actively ruling and governing all things, and he is very much present and at work in his church as his disciples go forth with his gospel. Matthew 26, verse 64 says, Jesus said to him, You said so, talking to the high priest, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus tells the high priest, you're going to see me from now on. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Similarly, Acts 2, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Who's responsible for the Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost? Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father, but he's sending his Spirit to fill his disciples so that they can speak tongues of fire to proclaim his gospel in all the world. Similarly, Acts 5, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And let's not lose, of course, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Psalm 110, that's clearly in the background of all the statements of Jesus about this and of the apostles about what happens at the ascension. Jesus is then fulfilling that. He's sitting down ruling at the right hand of the Father. So the right hand then is not just a place, but above all, it is all power and authority. The place of all power and authority, I guess we could say it like that. We're talking to Pastor Will Whedon in part four of our weekly series on the Nicene Creed. You're connected to issues, etc. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. Formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. One of the favorite features of those who attend our annual Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference is our hour-long hymn sing led by Pastor Will Whedon. Things Above is the hymn sing theme for the 2023 Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We will talk about Jesus coming again in glory next. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations.
One of the most difficult decisions that a spouse has to make is the decision to put their beloved husband or wife into a long-term care facility as a result of mental illness. In the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Michael Casting tells the story of how he cared for his wife during her struggle with Alzheimer's and how he came to grips with this decision. To find out more, you can read his article in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Putting Christ back into Christian radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with lamps burning, faithful manager, divided, repent or perish, and the barren fig tree. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the Nicene Creed with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will we come to the words, and he will come again with glory? Yeah. Yeah, and notice that it's not a see. He's not going to come again in secret to rapture his saints in a way that nobody sees. When he comes again, it's going to be visibly and in great glory. He says this, Matthew sixteen twenty three: the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Mark 13, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Luke 21, 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So you notice the theme there is very clear. When Jesus comes again, no one's going to miss the moment. It's going to be obvious and evident to everybody, and that great glory will be manifest. It will be the great epiphany, truly. And then we get to this phrase, to judge the living and the dead. First thing I want to say about that is notice that you can understand the phrase living and the dead in two different ways. You can understand it that Jesus is going to judge everybody, both the people walking around and breathing and the people who are in the ground and not breathing. And that's true. But you could also understand it in the sense of what Psalm 115 does. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down to silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the distinction between the living and the dead is not whether they're breathing or not, but whether or not they are praising the Lord for his great goodness, mercy, and love. So that is a different way of understanding and one that I actually was very pleased to read in St. Augustine. He definitely treated it that way as well and said it could be understood that he on that day reveals who's dead, who is not connected to me, and who is connected to me by faith and so filled with my own life. The ones not connected to Jesus, they're the dead. The ones connected to Jesus, no matter when they lived or where, they are the living. Now, to judge, though, let's be clear on that. 
Acts 10, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There's the very phrase the creed uses. And I hope as you know, as we've gone through this, it's been really clear. The creed is nothing more than a confession, a pulling together of the kerygma that's contained in the New Testament, proclaiming the mighty acts of Jesus Christ, what he has done for the world, especially by his incarnation, suffering, death, and resurrection, ascension, and and of course, here is coming again in glory to be the judge. Acts 17, verse 31, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Second Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. First Peter 4, 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So that's the the, the key phrase there. The, the living and the dead, Jesus is the one who will be the one finally deciding every human being's fate. Where will they end up? There is no second chance at that moment. Um, the point of life is to be connected to Christ so that death will not be able to be the end of you, nor hell. Now, whose kingdom will have no end, that's referring to Christ, whose kingdom has no end, 2 Peter 1.11, in this way, there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or maybe even more to the point, do you remember when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary and he told her that she was going to be conceiving and bearing this very special child? He told her, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there would be no end, a kingdom that has no end at all. This is, again, the stone that was described in Daniel 2, right, that becomes this great mountain and fills the earth. So God sets up an everlasting kingdom which will not be destroyed. It will not pass away. It will not go to another kingdom. It is a kingdom that lasts forever. This is the kingdom Jesus came to establish. But it's not a kingdom in what's in this world, but it's not of this world. So he says in John 18, verse 36, when he's talking to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world, but it is a very real kingdom. So Colossians 1 verse 13 says, he, that's God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been moved from the kingdom of darkness under Satan to the kingdom of Christ, which makes us be beloved sons as well. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom because it is kept safe for us in the heavens. That's why Hebrews 12 says we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and offer to God our thanksgiving and our praise and receive that kingdom with reverence and awe. There are pictures there in the book of Revelation of talks about the kings of the earth are wailing as God's judgment is being meted out on the world. And we even see a little bit of this in, in the world around us as Christians have throughout their history, that the kingdoms rise and fall. And when they fall, it's usually pretty bad. It's very painful. And it's, it's a great evil on the earth for kingdoms to fall, but they cannot last. I'm coming back to those words you quoted from the book of Hebrews, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
Yeah, that's the kingdom that, that lasts and endures. And you stop and think about it. Of course, the church has always been in existence since the word of God called to God a people from the beginning, but particularly came into existence with the death and resurrection of Jesus there in the first century in Palestine. And think of the kingdoms that have risen and fallen since then. Where's Genghis Khan? Where, where, where are the Roman emperors? Where's Caligula? Where, you know, go down the line. Uh, Henry VIII? Uh, what about Frederick the Wives? You know what I mean? Go through them. There, all these kingdoms have been here and gone. And yet, what endures? What lasts? The kingdom of Christ, which is his church, where his word is proclaimed and where we're given entrance into and foretaste of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and then endures forever. So the creed runs you through from start to finish the great acts of Christ in the kerygma, and it puts it in a very memorable and wonderful way. And when you stop and think about it, it should just blow your mind at how beautifully it knits together and summarizes everything scripture has to say. With about 30 seconds, what's next in our series? Next, we move to the third article of the creed, and that's going to be the one that was completed in Constantinople in uh, 381. That's the one where we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and particularly the sphere of the Spirit's work, both in this world, the church, and in the resurrection of the dead. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, He's authored the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week on You Must Be Ready, Not Peace, But Division, Interpreting the Time, Settle with Your Accuser, Repent or Perish, and the Parable of the Barren Fig Tree in Luke chapters 12 and 13. Listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues, etc., Brian Brown, president of the National Organization for Marriage, joins us to discuss President Biden's remarks about the Equality Act in his State of the Union address. Then Dr. Spencer Clavin, author of the new book, How to Save the West, will join us to discuss the fivefold crisis for Western civilization. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. We often hear that all of Holy Scripture is written about Christ. 
But do you know where to find him in books like 1 Kings? If you would like to deepen your knowledge of Christ in Holy Scripture, join the Concordia Bible Institute on February 18th at Pilgrim Lutheran Church in West Bend, Wisconsin, as the Reverend Doctors Brian Gurman and Harold Tomish of Concordia University, Wisconsin, present a seminar titled Christ in the Old Testament. To register, call our office at 262-334-0375 or visit concordiabible.org.